After recording this episode, we learned the devastating news that friend of the show, Aloy Anderson, passed away. Aloy was always somebody to offer practical and friendly advice. He supported so many of us and was always ecstatic at the success of others. The film photography community has lost one of its greatest advocates, richest resources, and most joyous photographers. His positive attitude and helpfulness, his photography and pioneering spirit will always be part of us. If you'd like to hear the interview that we did with him, check out episode nine. Uh, He also interviews us uh, for, for our dev party number 16. We'll be doing a much fuller piece about our friend in the next full episode. What's up, Eric and Vania? <laughs> Rolling, take one. Is it going to be all right? And welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And have we got a case of the mean blues? It's Cyanotypes this episode. What are they? Where'd they come from? And how can you, the listener at home, do them? We're also going to be talking to Denise Grays about Kansas and photography, and Tiffin is dropping by with some news about disposable cameras. There's also the answering machine and zine reviews, and Vanya, this is our 40th fucking episode. <laughs> Finally! Finally! <laughs> We're over the hill now! Just about. <laughs> uh, but how the hell are you? It feels like I could start living my life, you know? Now that we're at 40. Well, the 40th episode is the new 30th episode. I think so. I think that's I think so. How are you, how are you doing? Well, Eric, I'm doing just fine. I'm just kind of excited to get jabbed, if you know what I mean. I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm considering j- getting jabbed myself. <laughs> I'm hoping that that's going to happen really soon. I just can't wait to get it over with and be part of that card club with those little stamps on there that's saying I got vaccinated. So then I can turn into a zombie and eat people's brains too. I really want that for you. I know. So um, yeah, things have been okay. I have had a little bit of issues with my oldest uh, pug. Uh, as you guys know, I have a house full of animals. And my oldest uh, black pug, his name is Otto, he's 13 years old, and unfortunately, he has a collapsed trachea, which sounds just as awful as it is. Uh, He's having a really hard time breathing, and it's really sad to watch. He's going to be on medication for the rest of his life. I can take him in to see if he's a candidate for a stint. He's old, and I don't know if it's worth it. There's a lot of complications with it, so we're just kind of... uh, kicking back right now and seeing how he does with just taking the medicine. Right now, what I should be doing, and I have been trying to do, is take some pictures of him. I like taking pictures of my animals, and Otto's the original. I mean, he really was the animal. I started photographing and realized I really like to like photograph dogs and cats and things. So Hmm. he's so patient, and he'll do anything for food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I kind of the feeling. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm just like, you know, I'm doing good. I'm just a little sad right now with with the health of my animal. I know this is bound to happen eventually. I'm just, I don't think anybody's ever ready for it. So I am doing my best. The other thing I have going on is I purchased my first hole saw drill bit. 
Ooh. just letting you guys know that that happened. I've always wanted a whole soul drill bit. <laughs> and I bet you did too. The funny thing is, I have a plumbing company. Like if I went to the shop, I probably could have found the actual one that I needed, but I wanted my own. <laughs> of course you do. Everybody should have their own whole saw drill bit. Yeah, I think so. So I am planning on making a big fucking hole in a piece of quarter of an inch plywood as I attempt to make a custom lens board for the Century Number no. 7 camera. Hmm? Ooh, now how big is the lens board? That's like, is that a 4x4 four four or is that bigger? The lens board is 9x9. Nine nine. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big piece of wood. It's about a quarter of an inch. Yeah, I got this really huge lens uh, from India a few months back, and I've been meaning to kind of just get this like camera up and running. So I'm really, really excited to get this lens board made. Uh, we have a project coming up, which we'll talk about. Hopefully, we'll start it this weekend for a dev party. Yeah, kind of have to. Yeah. So I'm hoping to use that camera. That's that's the plan. Nice. So yeah, stay tuned and I will definitely tell you more about that later. But enough about me. Eric, what have you been up to? Well, I headed out east again last weekend-ish <gasps> and I played around like, exclusively with the Fulmer and Schwing RB Cycle camera. I mostly shot various FOMA and did some crazy driving on some incredibly shitty roads in Douglas County. Most roads in Douglas County are pretty good, but I found the really bad ones, but I got some good pictures because of it. Every spring I fall deeper in love with Eastern Washington, specifically the grossly named Channeled Scablands, which is maybe the worst name for anything <laughs> makes you want to go there it, it, it you know what don't go there nobody should go there <laughs> the geological history but no you should though the geological history in this part of the world is just bonkers you get these massive volcanic flows that reached all the way to the Pacific Ocean, uh, to these devastating floods at the tail end of the last ice age that exposed quite a bit of this old basalt and carved out these gigantic canyons. And if you've looked at my photos, you know what I'm talking about. So if any of this interests you, or if you just like listening to an amazing science communicator, I need to plug Professor Nick Zentner's YouTube channel. He put out his entire Geology 101 course, like the entire course online for free on YouTube. And now he's doing his 300 level course, which is really intense. Uh, he's doing, uh, he does other bunch of other videos where he does field trips and he goes into the field and explains what happened at these various geological sites. It's really fun. There's a really neat story here and it's not really photography related, but it's where I shoot. So I like knowing a little bit about where I shoot. So this is how like any information that I give about like the geological history of the places that I shoot, it's mostly from Nick or sources that I've gotten from Nick. Yeah. Check it out, I guess, if you like what I shoot. And because of all of that, I'm heading out again there next weekend for the dev party, if all goes according to plan, which I think it will, right? I hope so. Well, I will do cyanotypes regardless. Okay, fair enough. I just really want to do an in-camera cyanotype with the Sentry. Yeah, I'm kind of kicking around that idea too. I've already picked a spot where I want to do cyanotypes, which is a weird thing to say because most people just do cyanotypes at home, as you should. That makes the most sense, especially the first time ever you're ever doing them. This will be my first time doing them. So why not do it after like a few miles of hiking, carrying a huge large format camera and a couple gallons of water? Really, why not? I mean, you don't need to do the gallons of water till you get to the car, I would say. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah I could do just that. leave those at the car. Just bring some Tupperware. It's going to be so fun. Each episode, we pose a question to our listeners. In turn, they call us up and leave a voice message, giving us their insight, answers, and silliness. 
And by leave us a voice message, we mean they send us a voice message on Instagram. And you can too. So what was the question we asked this time around? The question was, do you name your cameras and why? And if so, which are your favorites? We've got a weird variety of, uh, well, let's just, let's just push the button here. Okay. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Eric and Vanya, Dave here, the old camera guy on YouTube and Instagram. I do not name my cameras after human beings, but I almost named a human being after a camera. You see, my wife and I agreed while she was pregnant that if we had a girl, we would name her Diana after the plastic craptastic toy camera. My other favorite toy camera, the Holga, was never really an option because, well, Holga. Anyway, we ended up with two boys who are now teenagers, and neither one of them is named Diana or Holga. I think the universe did you a solid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Diana is actually great. Diana is a wonderful I don't know about Holga. Holga seems like something that a Polish, like, grandmother would have while she was, like, Holga, are you done with the borscht yet? Or something. I don't know. Well, maybe. You might be crossing some cultures there. But, I mean, are there camera names that would be good, like, human names? You know you know, someone's named their kid Laika, and that someone is insufferable and horrible. <laughs> but is there any other? Oh, Brownie? <laughs> Probably not a great name for a human. A good name for a dog? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would name dogs all kinds of camera names, I guess. Good old Pentax. Hey guys, it's Michelle, space.cadet13 on Instagram. I don't name my cameras, but my mom thought that I named my cameras because I talked about Holga and Diana so frequently. I have a very big love of Holgas. I have three or four of them now at this point, I think. But yeah, uh, I don't name them, but she thought I did. Another Holga and Diana. That's so odd. Hmm. That That's hilarious, honestly. I have a Diana, but it's not called a Diana. It's called an arrow. Yeah, I have a Diana. It's not called a Diana. It's called a sure shot. <laughs> uh, they made a ton of Diana clones, and they're all about the same. Okay, what do you like better, Diana or Holga? Me? Who else would I be talking to? What do you like better? I guess I'm going to have to admit I've never shot with a uh, Holga before. Whoa, I don't know if I knew that. I mean, I literally just got that arrow for like three bucks, like what, seven months ago? Yeah, that's true. Had you shot with a Diana before then? No, never. Wow, okay. I think if I didn't have my mom's cameras, maybe I would have grabbed one, but okay. I just I just didn't get into it. Never did. Huh, that's, that's, that's weird. I've tried to get a Holga before, but for some reason I can't get one like less than $35 and I just don't want to spend $35. <laughs> Sorry. But did you did you like shooting with a Diana? I only shot with it once. Okay. And it was okay. I think I need to give it a little bit more of a chance. I see people do amazing stuff with it and yeah. I am just not at that level cuz I do not know how to work it. The only camera I've named in my uh collection has been my Minolta Weathermatic Dual 35 which I labeled the uh, the Zisu cam because it looks like a prop from uh, Steve Zisu from The Life Aquatic. Otherwise, I don't really name my cameras. However, my wife has named my RB67 as the second wife because she just thinks it's funny that I pay att- so much attention to that camera because I, I like it. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Sister wife. <laughs> second Sister wife. Sister wife. Eh, yeah. <laughs> if he plays his cards right, could be only wife. 
<laughs> something about the color yellow, by the way, you have to name. Like, if something's yellow, it just gets a name. It's just what it is. Like I said huh. before, I had a 1975 Lincoln Continental, okay. and it was yellow. Of course, it was a banana boat, and it actually drove kind of like a boat. Like, it was like you just floating. Okay. And it had a 425 engine block in that sucker. It was amazing. 45? Just like 445? A, four, was it 445? Fuck. I thought was it was a, a 425. Block? Big block. Big block. Biggest four, block. Four, 454 or 440? I thought it was a 425, but okay. maybe not. Okay. Well, I'll have to look maybe that somebody up. Can... I will let you guys know. Oh, yeah. Someone someone will definitely correct us on what how, how big a big block is. <laughs> will it be you? Oh, man. Names. Got all kind of crazy names for the cameras. You'd think it was some kind of science fiction action movie with the X700. X700. The AE1. Or the K1000, all very good. And then, of course, to say nothing of the lenses, the Xenar, Takumar, Fujinan. Um, I'm not 100% <laughs> sure he understood the question. <laughs> but it does bring up a good point. We do have a lot of futuristic-sounding cameras. Yes. I mean, you look back at the old cameras, well, like the Century camera and the Cycle camera and, you know, the, the Fulmer and Schwinn. These are all old-timey-sounding names. Mm-hmm. But then at some point, we started getting, like, pretty futuristic with our naming. The K-1000, the, the yeah. you know, all, the A-1, the steak sauce, but still, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, steak sauce. I forgot about that one. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, sorry. I have a Canon A1, so I call it steak sauce. And yes, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Howdy, guys. Jeremy Kilo here. Jeremy.Kilo on Instagram. Um, I do name my cameras, and I went for a while naming my cameras off to, after Greek mythological characters. So I have a Medusa and a Kronos. But with the Chamonix that I have, um, I actually named that camera after a name that was supposed to be for my daughter, but lost out when she was born. So that camera's name is Elise. Anyways, keeps me confident that I know what I'm talking about when I'm grabbing stuff. Anyways, thanks very much. I like the Greek god naming scheme. I would probably maybe go for the Ainur, but sure, Greek gods work as well. Or the Valar. I'd, I'd probably name my cameras after the Valar. So... And you went Athena. Okay, cool. What do you think of the name Elise for a camera? What do you think of the name Elise, period? I mean, obviously. Elise is a beautiful name. Beautiful name. I don't Wonderful. know how he he didn't win that one. Can you imagine how amazing his daughter's name must be since she didn't get Elise? Yes. It must seriously. be the best name in the world. Maybe it's Charlotte. Maybe he's like a big Cure fan. And it was a toss up between Charlotte from Charlotte sometimes and Elise from a letter to Elise. And Charlotte won out. I don't, and Charlotte, I mean, you wouldn't think it would win. But it's still, it's a, that's a solid name. There aren't a lot of Charlottes running around right now. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a cool name for a kid. Maybe, maybe, probably not a cool name for a camera though. So if I had to name a, if I had a kid and a camera and had the name Charlotte and Elise, the camera would definitely get Elise and the kid would by default get Charlotte. <laughs> there we go. That's why you don't <laughs> let me name your kids. Hey, y'all. Of course I name my cameras. Who doesn't? Um, Sometimes I name them after the people that I've purchased them from or acquired them through. Other times when I'm holding them, the name just kind of comes to me. Other times it takes a minute. It's almost like the camera's getting used to me just as I'm learning about it. And I do this 
to kind of build that relationship between me and my image capturing device, I suppose. I, I want it to be a co-conspirator. I, I want it to be an extension and an extension of my visual voice. And the only way to do that is to get more comfortable with it and not to treat it like a separate piece of machinery. So it's, it's almost like a friend. My daily SLR camera, for instance, my Nikon FE, his name is Leon, the professional. My Canon AE-1's name is Max. A couple of medium format camera names that I have include AK, Saul, Jerome, and Edie. My half frame Olympus Pen F, its name is Penny. I, I, I like the idea that she name some of the cameras after the people that she gets it from. Almost like a couple who names their child after the doctor that delivers their child. <laughs> Wait, do people do that? I think so. Okay. Or they used to, yeah. Her her philosophy on naming things is, it's very complete, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is. it's very well thought out. <laughs> I guess I would just name something for fun. Like, oh, this looks like a whatever. But I mean, it's, it's not surprising. It's Brandy. You know, there's thought and purpose to what she's doing and, and she'll probably d- disregard that or deny that but no i mean this is just she's fucking on it and it's really nice i agree i like leon the professional that's maybe the best name i've ever heard ever it is yeah that's from the professional sure it is <laughs> have you seen that movie i have not seen the professional i'm sorry okay <laughs> my stepdad let me see that like really young <laughs> i was like this is kind of weird but okay <laughs> I don't know. Everyone! Yes, thank you so much for calling. This was a fun one. I really like when people just call and tell us stories. Yeah, I like it when it gets a little a little personal, mm-hmm. I guess. I like that. You know, a little bit of personal. A little, little peek behind the weird-ass curtain that is Instagram <laughs> is always wonderful. Keep calling in. We love it. And thank you so much. Well, after hearing all of that, I guess we should probably give our own answers. So, now, do you name your cameras? I do. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. I mentioned last episode about Morla, my Graflex RB series B23. Oh my gosh. Wait. See? Graflex RB series B23. Yeah. What the hell? Actually, it's it's Graflex RB series B23. Two and a quarter, three and a quarter. <laughs> I mean, why don't you stick with that name? It's such a good name. Uh, yeah, it's it's perfectly long. Well, it looks like a Ghostbusters like ghost trap when you're walking around with it. I've it even thought like, oh, I should put some like yellow lines on this thing. But you, you absolutely know. should. <laughs> but to me, I have named it Morla, the ancient one. If you don't recognize the name, don't worry, I will explain it. Morla was a turtle who lived in the Swamp of Sadness in 1984's The NeverEnding Story. She looks like a mountain, but when she wakes up and brings her head out from hiding, she's a turtle. And that's exactly what the graphics looks like when you wind that little butt in and that curtain opens up and the lens pops out. It's adorable. So, Morla. <laughs> Morla is my Graflex RB Series B, two and a quarter, three and a quarter. Actually... We don't care. Uh, So yeah, I like to name things and kind of like Brandy, but not as deep. It takes a while sometimes. Like not all my cameras have names. Sometimes they will eventually get a name, but 
again, it is a part of like a relationship that you connect with these certain cameras in a certain way, and then they have nicknames after some some time. No, I I, I totally get that. I mean, I get what you're saying. I, I get what Brandy's saying. But to be really honest, I just don't name things except cats. I name people. I mean, I even name people. Well, Most people yes. that I surf with have names. Okay, <laughs> that are well, not their own. Oh, I see. Okay, you give nicknames out. Okay, yes. I don't have a nickname though. You don't. I don't That's... either though. My name's Vanya. There's nothing. Meh. Okay. So I, yeah, I don't I don't name like non living things, cars or cameras or things like that. I tried to name. I had a red Vespa named Ruby. Uh, I named it after my my roommate's red convertible that we raced around Columbus, Ohio in in the nineties. But it just didn't stick, and it was his name for the car. I didn't name the car. So that said, there is the Mamiya RB67, which both of us and probably everybody who has one calls it the RB, just RB. Mm-hmm. Hand me the RB. Give me the RB. I'm taking. I'm using the RB. And we just know what that is, right? It just makes yes. sense. But then there's, we both also have the Graflex RB Series B, two and a quarter by three and a quarter, which, as she mentioned, is a mouthful. I don't know how to shorten that. I don't have a, I mean, I guess I could call it Morla, but that's your name for your camera. And I'm not going to do that, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I guess I could. I don't really care. So if it wouldn't have been for the Mamiya, it would just be called the RB because it has a rotating back just like the Mamiya. I tried calling it the 2.3 for a while, but then I got the baby Graflex, which was also a 2.3, and it just didn't it didn't work out. You know, just like, well, now which one am I talking about? So um, hold on really quick because you just named a camera. The baby. No, you that's the name. No, they're called baby Graflexes. Are they? Yeah. I thought it was just something, because I call it the baby. It may be an unofficial name, but if you search one on eBay or something, they'll come up. That's what they're called. Baby Graflex. But that's a nickname. That's not what they're really called. Maybe not totally officially, but I mean, you talk to somebody about it, they're going to know what you're talking about. Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure that's kind of naming your camera. But I didn't name, okay, it's a name for a camera. I didn't give it that name. So we're talking about (laughs) naming the cameras. I didn't do that. So my Graflex Series B RB two and a quarter by three and a quarter is nameless and it's confusing. And when she asked me when I'm shooting, I just, I just rattle off some series of, oh, it's the RB Graflex Series B. It's the Series B Graflex RB. It's the 2-3 Graflex RB Series <laughs> RB Series 2-3. Oh and I can never God. remember what it is. So we should have a contest to name my camera. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have a little contest on, on Instagram on what to name my camera. I like it. I like it too. Hi, I'm Vanya Francesca with an all-through-a-lens news brief. Disposable cameras are making a comeback with Fuji, Ilford, and some monthly thing introducing new models. Here's Tiffin Sinclair with the story. Yo, what up, my dudes? I'm back at it again, here to report that Fuji does in fact have a conscience. After adequately killing all of our favorite film stocks and formats, the company has decided to reintroduce their quick-snap waterproof single-use camera to the analog market. This is music to your ears if you were looking for a camera to shoot with while mourning the loss of yet another Fuji film stock, but didn't want to worry about ruining it with your tears. Straight out of the package, this plastic fantastic comes loaded with 800 speed film, a 32mm f10 lens, fires at 1 125th of a second, and will produce 27 exposures. 
That means you have 27 opportunities to capture the perfect Moody Graham Lo-Fi post-cry session mirror selfie of your dreams. What could you possibly be crying about? You guessed it, the loss of yet another Fuji film stock. But for our emotionally stable listeners with healthy coping mechanisms, you'll be glad to know that this camera can be used in inclement weather and underwater. On land, focusing distance starts at 3 feet and beyond. In water, you're best staying between a range of 3 to 9 feet. Or gills, rather. This waterproof memory-making machine is available now and can be yours for a reasonable $12. Hurry up and snatch one up before Fuji changes its mind and sends this one back to the analog graveyard. But in more colorful news, Ilford is getting ready to release their Ilfo Color Rapid Disposable Camera. Now, in an effort to maintain my subpar journalistic integrity, I must disclose that the makers of this particular camera are known as Ilford Imaging Europe, and their primary focus is producing photographic paper, while Ilford Harman, which is the Ilford we know, is the company behind photographic film. Now that I have simultaneously stopped you from hyperventilating and crushed your dreams of the possibility of there ever being an HPCN, let's get into the specs. Funky fresh looks aside, this disposable comes preloaded with 400 ISO film, boasts a 31mm f11 lens, and will fire at your standard 1 125th of a second. You get 27 exposures, which means you have 27 opportunities to capture the perfect evocatively nostalgic cliché of your dreams. Set to release in May of this year, you have about a month to save $15, which is the current asking price. Lastly, if you'd much rather have disposable cameras come to you than you to them, Snap It might be right for you. This subscription service delivers a brand spanking new dispo camera, as they call it, to your doorstep every month, so you won't have any reason not to be out there chasing them tones. As with all subscription services, there are tiers. Tears as in levels, not tears as the ones you shed when you remember that Fuji discontinued your favorite film. Anyways, the $10 per month tier, which Snap-It has labeled as the Send option, gets you one dispo with, that's right, 27 exposures. For $30 a month, or the Rager option, you get one dispo, a prepaid mailer for film development, and 1800 by 1200 pixel digi images sent directly to your smartphone. For $5 more, the final tier named The Goat gets you all the perks of the Rager but with higher resolution files capping at 4,500 by 3,000 pixels. You know, if you're into that sort of thing. It's worth mentioning that Snap-It won't send your negatives back, they're simply in the business of delivering dispos and digi files. But before I wrap this up and hand it back over to Vanya and Eric, I'd like to say that All Through a Lens Podcast, along with its subsidiaries, co-host, and film developing division, i.e. Dev Party, are not sponsored by any of these companies. So rest assured that I have reported the objectively subjective truth to the best of my ability. This has been Tiffin Sinclair for All Through a Lens. Catch you later, dudes. That's the news for now. More news around the clock right here on All Through a Lens. <laughs> Denise Grays has been photographing Kansas for more than a decade. Her recent zine, A Love Letter to Kansas, released by themselves, Press, sold out in basically a weekend. Since we both adore Kansas more than life itself, we thought it'd be a great time to have Denise on and talk to her all about that. So let's give her a call. Hello? Hello, Denise. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on and talk to us for a little bit. Hopefully you can hear this. Is it clear enough? You, you sound good. So uh, I guess let's just get right into it. Yeah, let's dive right in. All right. The first one is yours, Vanya. Keen-eared listeners might recognize your voice from our uh, answering machine and your messages, but could you give us a quick rundown on who you are and what you shoot? I'm a longtime hobbyist photographer. I enjoy toy cameras, pinhole, instant, point shoots, all sorts of things. Well, except for I don't do large format, but anything I can get my hands on, I like to shoot it. I've recently gotten into uh, panoramas with uh, the Horizon Perfect, oh. and I got that from my pal Mike Williams. Shout out to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have a uh, Holga wide pinhole. Oh, and, wow. Uh, uh, let's see. What else about me? Oh, I like uh, to experiment, obviously. I do some film soups, mm-hmm. double exposures. I like to swap roles with people and do doubles that way. Yeah. You've been doing one that was red scale on one side and normal on the other? Yeah. I did a film swap with Mary. She's in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And she had the idea of doing an exposed both sides swap. And I had never done one of those before. That's right up my alley. Okay, let's go for it. So yeah, I shot like a roll of gold the regular way and sent it to her and she flipped it and shot it red scale and we got some really cool colors and really interesting results from that that's really cool (laughs) so okay it's no secret that we love kansas both of us but we're not kansas tonians or whatever kansans or kansans i guess kansans Kansans. we're not kansans um so give the listeners a pitch as to why they might want to photograph the sunflower state i think kansas would teach photographers a lesson in patience you know, I think things move pretty quickly, you know, here in the modern world, communications, transportation, all that. But Kansas is how I like to describe demure. You know, mm. she doesn't show her hand immediately. She's not in your face with mountains and rivers and forests and this and that. It's like you have to explore her. You have to travel. You have to put forth the effort to get off the interstate and find these cool gems you just have to take your time and really sit in the place and absorb it you know mm-hmm. i think it, i think that's a good point about kansas and that's a good lesson that people could learn from shooting areas here hmm. Ugh, that was like the perfect <laughs> explanation yeah, that's kansas that really is that really is and, you know you guys have been to kansas so you kind of get what i'm saying yeah. that you know once you get out here and explore and then it's like oh wow cool this all oh, wow this is here this oh this <laughs> this ancient sea battles here and what like what yeah <laughs> yeah you know get out of town get on the road take a turn somewhere go to a little town take your time and do it yeah, absolutely. How, how long have you called Kansas your home? Oh, my whole life. Nice. <laughs> Born and raised here. That's awesome. Uh, do you think Kansas is a place that you have to live in to understand well enough to take photographs of it? Uh, no, I think, you know, one's personal style will always kind of color the photos you take wherever you go. Mm-hmm. You know, they say every photo you take is like a self-portrait. Hmm. So, you know, a piece of you will be in it. You'll, you influence the photo. So, you know, of course, always spending time in a place, extended time in a place 
will do you good. Yeah. Well, on that, you just published a love letter to Kansas, which actually came in the mail yesterday for me. So I'm super stoked. Yeah. (laughs) Very thrilled with it. You published it through Themselves Press. How did that come about? Serendipity. (laughs) I've been following uh, Themselves Press and her personal account, Casual Science, for a while and just really enjoyed seeing what she was doing with other artists and how the zines were coming together and how enthusiastic people were about what she was getting out into the world for people. Yeah. And so I had this idea late last year about Kansas Day coming up. So Kansas became a state January 29th, 1861. So this was like a milestone birthday for Kansas. She put something together for that and you know, I like my home. My home is it's a great place. It's kind of underrated. And, oh, I should write a letter. Like, Kansas is a person that I love and I care about. And so I wrote this sort of love note to Kansas and then started going through my scans and trying to pick out things that I felt fit my letter and that be sort of unusual choices, something you things you might not necessarily associate with Kansas. So I had this idea pretty well fleshed out. And so I emailed themselves press. And was telling her about my idea and, and she was really enthusiastic about it and i was kind of asking her some technical questions about like how do i put this together what how do i do this because i'm not a, like graphic design layout person and she's like well <laughs> i've been meaning to ask you if you were interested in doing a zine and having it be sold under my imprint of themselves press and i could put it out sell it and split the profit i was like yes how yes yes please <laughs> let's do this wow that's really cool <laughs> so <laughs> i kind of you know I, I had my idea i gave her my stuff and she put it together and made it pretty <laughs> <laughs> and put it on her site and people really have been really kind about my work and the zine on themselves press so that's how that came to be. Okay. So when you're documenting Kansas, when you're out there shooting it, what's your like intention behind it? Like, since, like what do you see as your Kansas that you want to capture? When I shoot, I want to feel something in the end result. I want to be surprised. I want to feel warmth or discomfort or whatever. Uh, it doesn't have to be. My intention is just get to get a visceral reaction out of myself first. Mm. Like sometimes that'll happen in the moment, you know, you'll have that gasp moment and like, oh, I got to shoot this. And then sometimes there's other places where it's like, you've seen it a bunch of times and it's like, okay, how can I make this more interesting? How can I show this to myself in a different way and get a different feeling out of this place that I see all the time? Mm. But I do, I do love my home. Yeah. So I feel like that'll come through anyway. I don't need to put any extra, you know, floweriness to it. <laughs> it does. It really does. <laughs> oh, so I noticed, Eric. You, I didn't realize that you gave me this question because oh. you want me to say this word. So I will try my best. <laughs> I'm gonna go for it, and if everybody laughs, I'm okay with it. All okay. right. At least in this scene, you shoot a lot of decay, both urban and rural. <laughs> What draws you to that? <laughs> that word was rural, by the way. 
I hadn't really thought of it as decay. Okay. I don't, I don't think I do like abandonment porn or glorified broken or forgotten things. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I shoot someplace or something that's old, I approach it as remembrance or honoring it or honoring history and yeah. trying to gain an understanding of a place how it is now compared to how it was and what it could be later and maybe just capturing it before it's gone completely. But I don't know if I would necessarily say decay, really. Okay. I don't know. What would you call it? <laughs> I don't know what, what would be better, but... Because I, I shoot a lot of that, too. I just call it decay, but maybe it's not a good word. It, it varies. It really just mm-hmm. depends on what old thing that you're shooting. I mean, okay, we've all seen the leaning barn out in the field yeah. all by itself. Okay, that's decay. But <laughs> an old cemetery with the wrought iron crosses and maybe a little grass has grown up. I don't necessarily think of that as decay. I think hmm, yeah. it's just old and historic and it has a story to tell if you just go in there and look for it. Okay, I like that. Going to the zine again, uh, with the exception of an arm, there were no humans in the zine. So was this a conscious decision to leave them out? Because you do shoot people here and there. Well, actually, there is a uh, a human being in the zine. There's a woman in the photo of Monument Rocks. Oh, you're right. She's, she's kind of popping out of the keyhole. You're right, you're rock. right. Yes. And funny story about that, it's like, <laughs> my friend and I had gone to Colorado. We were on our way home, and I told her, I said, Oh, I really want to go to Monument Rocks because I'd never been. And so we went. It was hot, it was windy, but you know, we were toughing it out. And I've been ducking and dodging this woman this whole time we were out there because, you know, I don't want anybody to get my picture. <laughs> <laughs> and so you guys have been out there, so yeah. you know how there's like some open space away from the rocks. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of got away from the rocks and was facing the uh, rock with the keyhole in it again and got my tripod set up and I got my camera and it's like the nanosecond I was pushing the button and looking through the viewfinder she popped out of the keyhole (laughs) and oh man I was just so angry in that moment it's like I have been trying to get out of your way this whole time and I finally get my child I was so enraged at this whole time I did not watch you in here, but then I got my film developed and I'm looking at it and it's like, oh, well, yeah, she kind of made that shot. <laughs> Thanks, lady. <laughs> it does, it does you give size. Sense, you give a sense of the scale and how big those rocks are. Oh, cool. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Kansas Sunset. I can't tell you the science behind it, but (laughs) (laughs) the skies are usually pretty clear here. You know, it's a good breeze usually to blow all the junk away. So you'll see the cotton candy kind of colors with pinks and the magentas and the clouds. And sometimes it can go go fiery with the orange. It's not like other places where the sun will just mm. dip behind a mountain and it's dark. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay, we're done here. It's dark. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to sit and enjoy your sunset for a little longer here and see more of it, more of the landscape here because there's... Not a whole lot blocking your view. Okay. <laughs> I don't catch very many Kansas sunrises. I'm not really an early riser, <laughs> so I can't comment on those. Although I'm sure they are beautiful as well. They are. Yeah, actually the most beautiful sunsets and sunrises I've seen are Kansas. So what is something that is very specifically Kansas, like a Kansas thing that people outside of Kansas really wouldn't get? That's a hard question. I'm not real sure about 
which direction to go with that. I feel like I'm not being a very good Kansas spokesperson right now. <laughs> but um, you know what? I'm going to go with the original Pizza Hut building. Pizza <laughs> Hut was founded in Kansas. And the original building, it's a little brick building that's now a museum. Really? On the Wichita State University campus. And before the plague, you could go and tour it. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with that. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Carmi's Pizza, the original Pizza Hut building on campus. <laughs> that so, is the Kansas thing. <laughs> so when you were saying like you weren't sure, I was like, please let it be food. Please, like in my head, please let it be food. Please let it be food. Please let it be food. And it's food. <laughs> my, yeah, my fat kid came out and was like, pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I have another question. When I was with them, I was driving my Sprinter. And I think that automatically I felt that everybody knew I wasn't from there. (laughs) I don't think I saw like another Sprinter like for miles and miles. So when I walk into these like small towns, sometimes I felt like, okay, like they definitely know that I'm not from here. (laughs) Do you ever feel like you're not like from there? Or do you feel like there's just like this connection? Like I was born and raised here. This is like my place. Oh, definitely. I feel like a visitor in a lot of these places are not, you know, some places are like, who are you? What are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) And they're just very confused (laughs) about it. And you have to tell them, well, you know, I, this is my hobby and I like your little town. I think it's cute. And I wanted to, and they're like, oh, cool. You know, then they're like, oh, then they're on board. (laughs) And then some other places where I think people have photographed it a lot. Mm. They're like, oh, hey, they'll wave at you. Like, hey, how you doing? Have you have you shot the other thing down on the other head? Like, they'll tell you where to go. <laughs> That's so cool. I did notice that when when people in Kansas notice that you, you like their town, they're like, oh, you got to go meet this person or you got to go over here and see this. And they're so welcoming in that way. As long as you can initially have that conversation with people, it does seem to open up. The Kansas scene is sold out. Like we mentioned before, unfortunately, sorry, guys, you missed out. You have to pay attention. Um, but you did do two other previous scenes that are still available. And, you know, we just want to make sure that we mention those uh, to destroy something beautiful and stay at home. So can you tell us maybe a little bit um, about both of those and where people can get them? To destroy something beautiful is a zine of, um, I think it was like a couple of rolls of film that I souped and I had taken pictures of like religious sculptures in cemeteries and I decided to soup it. And then um, stay at home, I was never good at following orders, (laughs) was two uh, weekend trips I did with my two friends from work while we were furloughed Mm -hmm. during the plague. And um, we had it. There was a stay at home order in Kansas at the time, but we decided not to stay at home. <laughs> we got out, got on the road. And um, this was also during a time when people were all stirred up on Instagram about um, black artists and supporting black artists. And then I had the idea of like, oh, well, I've just taken all these pictures. I should probably put a zine together. Since <laughs> I got, I popped up on um, Back to the Base. Yeah. That, featured counts list of black artists you should follow and so i ended up with like 100 followers like a day it was like nuts wow it's like okay so i got all these people looking at me now <laughs> <laughs> and they all want to support black artists and spend some money i was like i need to get them some something they can spend some money on so i put the scenes together <laughs> <Right>. on <laughs> <Black> cloud. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, hey, I'm black. I got something to sell. Come on. <laughs> Come on, let's spend some money. <laughs> so, um, they are available on MagCloud. To destroy something beautiful is $8. And stay at home. I was never good at following orders. It's like 14 And we'll have a link in the show notes as well. There you go. Yeah. Uh, our answering machine message was, do you name your cameras? And if so, which which is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't call my cameras names unless they are malfunctioning. And then I'll call them all sorts of terrible names. <laughs> <laughs> the next answering machine question, the one coming up on the episode following this one, is what vehicle-related things have you done to accommodate your photography? Oh, I bought a reliable vehicle. <laughs> In June, I sold my car nice. and bought another one. So it's opened up a whole new world for me. It's like, nice. I can be a little further out now and not be terrified. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, Denise, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. If we're in Kansas, we're going to have to send you a message. Yeah. Hopefully we can meet yep. up. <laughs> Thank you, Vanya. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. I appreciate it. No problem at all. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, right. sounds good. Yep. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. So, Vanya, what do you think about cyanotypes? I love them. <laughs> They're blue and freaking sweet. <laughs> Sorry, I'm excited, you guys. So I think they are amazing. I remember when I learned about them. Oh. And the person that I learned them from was a photography teacher. And their eyes lit up with excitement. They were using their old pack film, black and white negatives, mm-hmm. to do contact prints with cyanotypes. And just to see how excited he was, I was like, what is this all about? And I think the one thing that is really important is, hey, you guys don't have a dark room at home and you guys want to print some images, you can print images using the cyanotype process. All you need is some sun. That's true. So I'm really excited. I think I've brought up cyanotypes since we started the podcast and Eric finally agreed it was uh, it was time to talk about it. So spring is here. Sun is starting to stay out a little bit longer. So let's dive into this beautiful world of cyanotype printing. Yeah, I have never done a cyanotype before. And I think we mentioned at the top of the show that we're going to be doing them, we kind of started digging into the history of cyanotypes mm-hmm. and what where did this thing come from? So cyanotype is a printing process that produces a deep blue negative print. Generally, a piece of paper is coated with an emulsion made up of potassium ferrocyanide and ferric ammonium citrate. And once it's dried, an opaque object, often like a flower or like a fern, things like that, are placed on top of the paper and exposed to light. And after the exposure and washing, the unexposed emulsion is washed away, leaving an impression of whatever object was placed on the paper. The exposed emulsion then turns a deep Prussian blue. Yeah, so for the most part, they've been used as some sort of shadow box with people making impressions of flowers and leaves. That's what is the most common if you type in cyanotype. Yeah, you'll find a lot of that. start looking it up. Yeah. 
So before looking into cyanotypes, I figured that they predated photography. It kind of seems like a very rustic, simple thing, right? This is like some old ass thing that came about from the Victorian urge to memorialize everything. You just lay some, obviously some funeral flowers on a piece of paper, put in some horribly bright sunlight. And before you could say Charlotte fucking Bronte, you'd have yourself a cyanotype. But no, that is not at all how it happened. Photography was invented by, I'm gonna butcher this, Nisifor Nice in 1822. <laughs> he made his view from the window at La Grasse, considered to be the earliest surviving photograph in 1827. But there were tons of advances before that. Sure, camera obscuras dated back to 600 BCE. Pinhole cameras were mathematically described by Arab physicist Al-Hazan around the year 1000. Light-sensitive silver nitrate was discovered about 200 years after that, and silver chloride came about 300 years after that. Photosensitive paper came about in 1800, two decades before the first photograph, and William Henry Fox Talbot invented what we know as photographic paper in 1834. And so I figure that cyanotypes happened sometime before then, right? Before 1822. But no, photography predates cyanotypes by a few decades. And how? Why? My problem was that I was thinking of cyanotypes as photography. Like how friend of the show Aloy Anderson does his in-camera cyanotypes, or really, I guess I saw them as contact prints. And if you were wondering what contact printing is, contact printing is where you lay negatives on photo paper, expose it to light, do some mysterious alchemy, and poof, you create a positive. But they don't come from that either. No, in the 1800s, there was a guy named John Herschel. You might remember him from our Julia Margaret Cameron episode. He taught her photography, and in return, she photographed him in all of his weird-haired glory. Yeah, it's that guy. John Herschel was a busy man. When he was not teaching wonderfully strange women photography, he was building telescopes, naming moons, figuring out astigmatism, discovering galaxies, writing books on botany, helping Darwin write The Origin of Species, inventing new photographic processes, discovering sodium theosulfate and hypo, translating the Iliad, and correcting the fucking calendar. (laughs) Busy fella. And so it's not really clear what Herschel was up to when he invented cyanotypes in 1842. Some sources say he was looking for a way to copy his notes, which maybe others say that he was trying to see what effect light had on various iron compounds. And knowing Herschel, it was probably a bit from column A, a bit from column B. For years, Herschel had been messing around with hundreds of photochemical experiments, using mostly various silver salts. By 1841, he had moved on to experimenting with vegetable colors plant dyes. He had very little luck with that, putting a halt to it in spring of 1842. He found organic compounds just faded too easily. And because of this, he turned to the inorganic. He went back to metals. His attention turned to the brand new compound potassium ferrocyanide, which was prepared through the electrolytic oxidation of potassium ferrocyanide. Different thing. The new chemical was this deep and beautiful red. One fine day, Herschel was farting around his lab, playing with some potassium ferrocyanide, you know, like we all have done. He coated a piece of paper with it and it created a violet color. But when he dipped it into water, it became a beautiful Prussian blue. Now, Prussian blue isn't just some deep blue color. It was created as a deep blue pigment in the early 1700s by oxidating ferrous ferrocyanide salts. Since this color of blue did not occur in nature, when people saw it, they literally lost their minds. They just couldn't get enough of it. Painters especially loved it. 
Have you seen The Great Wave by Hakusai? Tons of Prussian blue there. Clothing manufacturers loved it too, and the Prussian army used it for their uniforms, though that's not where it's got the name. It was invented in Berlin, and sometimes called Berlin blue, or Paris blue, because... Why not? Anyway, Herschel accidentally invented another way to make Prussian blue, this time through a photochemical process rather than just a chemical process. He was stoked. Realizing that this change of color from the sunlight could be used in photography, a word he invented, by the way, he set about the next day to dial in exactly what was needed to create consistent cyanotypes, a term that he had not yet coined, though. To his, perhaps, disappointment, his new invention created a negative. This was sort of a bummer, but he quickly realized that he could use it to make prints. And why not? The blue was gorgeous. At first, he made copies of a bunch of engravings. These were negatives that looked kind of shitty, honestly, but he soldiered on. A month or so later, after discussing it with the guy who invented potassium ferrocyanide, the guy, he suggested using ammonio citrate, which was then being used in medicines. This chemical was completely unknown to Herschel. He had never heard of it. But after picking some up at the local drugstore, seriously, he discovered it too was photosensitive. Following a good bit of sciencing, Herschel found that this new chemical, when added to potassium ferrocyanide, made the emulsion, for lack of the better word, much faster, more photosensitive. And thus, finally... Cyanotypes were born. But Herschel was not even a little done. Before the summer was out, he invented three other processes. Argentotypes. Using silver. Christotypes. Using gold. And kalanotypes. Ooh, using mercury. I like kalanotypes. The mercury ones have <laughs> got to be pretty fun. Yeah. So Herschel was stuck on making prints from engravings, which is what his – he couldn't really get out of that mindset of making prints from engravings. He was really – really into that. He was so into it. The paper that he submitted to the Royal Society was accompanied by 43 prints of just that and nothing else. And they looked awful. Other photographers soon took up the process, but favored a slightly different method for making positives of negatives they produced with their cameras. But it wasn't camera-based photography that made Cyanotypes famous. It was Anna Atkins, often seen as the first woman photographer, though that might go to Constance Fox Talbot. It's really hard to say. And neither have surviving photos to this day. So we'll just, we'll never know. So, but not only was Anna Atkins a photographer, she was also a botanist. And if you've seen Cyanotypes before, I think you know where this is going. Though a few people dabbled in Cyanotypes early on, the first person to make any sort of artistic or illustrative use of the process was Anna Atkins a botanist and photographer. She got into photography through Talbot and became friends with Herschel, who lived nearby. What a great neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Throw in Julia Margaret Cameron and what? It, I mean, seriously, can you imagine? I mean, who needs to go to school? Just go to your neighbor's house. <laughs> So when Herschel came up with this formula, Anna immediately realized it could be used for making prints of plants. I mean, she just zoned on that immediately. Essentially, she came up with the idea of capturing the shadows of objects, which is how most people still use cyanotypes. But for Anna, it wasn't as simple as popping into a hobby store to buy cyanotype kits. She had to make it herself. The big problem there was that potassium ferrocyanide was in very short supply. Fortunately for her, potassium ferrocyanide was readily available, and her father had enough galvanic batteries lying around that she could make her own potassium ferrocyanide. Her first and most famous project was called Photographs of British Algae, Cyanotype Impressions. The book was self-published and contained over 300 cyanotypes of various seaweeds and algae, as well as handwritten text on every page. Because of the nature of cyanotypes, each copy of the book was a unique, one-of-a-kind edition. In all, she made 5,000 cyanotypes types for the print run. 
By the end, she may have made up to 20 copies of the book. Presently, no complete editions exist. After the final publication, Anna, along with her friend and almost sister, Anne Dixon, continued the work. With Anna's help, Dixon published cyanotype books on ferns in 1853. She produced more such volumes through the 1850s and 1860s. The fact that two women became known as champions of this new process was probably the reason that it was viewed with such derision in Victorian England. It is a simple process, and since women were viewed as simple and essentially stupid, this was a process for them. Photographers shunned it, printmakers ignored it, and while the blues were pretty, cyanotypes were seen as women's work. As time went on, this opinion gradually faded, unlike cyanotypes, and men grew secure enough in their masculinity to give this blueprinting thing a try. Most of these manly attempts were making photographic prints from negatives. Even Edwin Curtis, the famed photographer of Native Americans, had a go at it. Some photographers approach cyanotypes in a more practical way, as proofs or for contact sheets. But mostly, it seems cyanotypes were either ignored or just seen as something too There were, of course, manly uses for cyanotypes, with the most popular and most manly being the architectural blueprint. Many sources credit Herschel with the invention of the blueprint, but that's not really true, as it didn't come about until after his death in 1871. In fact, it wasn't until the early 20th century that pre-sensitized cyanotype paper for blueprints was being produced. By 1920, almost everything being constructed was first laid out on a copy of cyanotype blueprint. This method reigned for a half a century before being replaced by photocopying. And even though the medium was replaced, the word blueprint is still used. It's even taken on a broader definition. It's now just a synonym for plan. While there was a resurgence in the early 1900s, cyanotypes gained more interest in recent years with pre-coated sun paper. This was embraced more by the arts and crafts community than by photographers, likely for the same reasons as before. They were simple and thus for children and the women taking care of them. Most of our information came from the book Saya Namakon by Mike Ware, written in 2020. Hmm, someone had some time on their hands. This is available as a free downloadable PDF. This is a 400-page book of exhausted research. If you have an interest in delving deeper into cyanotypes, definitely check this out. Yeah, we will have a link in the show notes for that. But Vanya, mm-hmm. you've been doing cyanotypes for years. So could you tell us a little bit what you do at home? Yes. So because I haven't mentioned it yet, and you know, I live in Los Angeles, so I have to say I live in LA, and we have a lot of sun here, so <laughs> might as well take advantage of it. Uh, So mostly in the spring and summer, I start to do some cyanotypes. And honestly, every single time I do it, I'm like, what the hell, dude, I should do more. So uh, (laughs) I've done like three different kinds. I've definitely done like other experiments, but these are my three true ones that I've actually done fairly decent at. Uh, The first one is printing on watercolor paper, which is like the most basic. And if you've never done a cyanotype, I would definitely start there. Uh, So I've done the contact prints with found objects, and I've also bleached my... FP100C negatives to get the negative off. Mm, And then I could do contact prints with that. So if you guys don't know that, that will be, ooh, we should probably do like a dev party on that. On bleaching film that's not been produced for like five years now? (laughs) I know, that's terrible. Okay, Uh, never mind. We won't do that. Okay, so the next thing is like printing negatives on watercolor paper. Okay, say you have like this beautiful 35 millimeter photograph, but it's really tiny. So if you do a contact print, it's going to be like the size of the actual negative. So there are some little tricks that you can do, and I'm pretty sure there are a million YouTube tutorials on it, but I'm just going to explain it really quickly how I do it. I just pick a photo that I really like. I open it in Photoshop. Usually I scan fairly large. 
large, and then I just invert it into a negative. I adjust it just a tiny bit just to make sure that the contrast is like really good. I think with practice, you'll realize what negatives work good and which ones do not. And then I print it out on transparency paper. Now, this is a black and white photo, right? I mean, you can do color, but I, don't know, I wouldn't. I mean, you, you want something that is really going to like show up. Yeah. You want something pretty contrasty that works. So yeah, you can get transparency paper at like most like paper stores and it's really fun. You have this giant negative and you just press it against the paper or whatever and there you go. And do you also do some printing on fabric? I have one of your handkerchiefs. Yeah. So I have like, I like to collect shit and I have a collection of like handkerchiefs, like old vintage handkerchiefs. And I cyanotype printed a bunch of those and Eric has one of them. I, do. I sent it to him. I do. <laughs> it's just, it's really special and it's really cool. I'll, I'll pull it out and I'll take a picture of it for the, for the, uh, show notes and Instagram. Yeah, it's a beautiful print, very deep blue. Yeah. Those ones are a little more difficult. You are going to make a little bit of a mess, but it's definitely worth it. So I use 100% cotton and I do this at night before I go to bed. I soak it and, you know, kind of wring it out so it's not like sopping wet and let them dry in the bathroom until they're super dry. You got to make sure that the cloth is 100% dry or else it'll come out super weird. Uh, And then I just press it between glass with whatever I am printing it with and you wash it the same as paper. It's just fabric. Seems easy enough. It is. It's just like if I've never done it before, I would definitely start with just doing the watercolor paper first. That makes sense. Uh, We are getting our kits from Photographer's Formulary and there's instructions in there and the instructions are pretty easy to follow i guess it's photographer's formulary so their instructions are just weird but i think you can muddle through it yes for the next dev party if all goes somewhat according to plan we are recording from the field we both will be making cyanotypes using the photographer's formulary cyanotype kit and walking each other through the process as we go so that could be interesting (laughs) yeah you'll mostly be helping me on this one So I'm planning on doing a few things. First, I would like to do the traditional pressed plant cyanotype along the lines that Anna Atkins and Dixon did. I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. I've never done it before, and there's just something kind of neat about it, right? Oh my gosh. I know. Look at he's being he's actually being positive and not like totally shooting this down. This is amazing. So I also (laughs) well, I also want to make a print from a negative, like one of my four by five negatives. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking of which one to use, but I'll probably bring a couple out there and, and see what see what works best. I would also like to do something with the transparency. I, I'm a screen printer, so we do like what you do. You said we print things on transparency and then burn them on screens. And this is the kind of the exact same process as making a cyanotype. I mean, mm-hmm. it kind of exact, except you yeah. do it on a screen so you can print through it. I will probably do the all through a lens logo. Just... Why the hell not? Finally, I would like to combine all three of these in some sort of Santa type collage, but we'll see how that all goes. And what are you planning on doing? I am planning on doing a, like you, a in-camera cyanotype using the Century Number no. 7 and some pre-cut 5x7 watercolor paper, which I probably should make sure I have. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I'll also do some plant life stuff. I'm probably going up to the cabin, Mm. so I'm just going to collect some stuff that's, you know, on my property. Yeah. Yeah. But first, check in with us next week and uh, listen to Dev Party and just kind of see how it all turns out for us. Yes. (laughs) 
Anybody who's listened to us for more than a couple of episodes knows that we really love zines. We've made, we've read, we've looked at, and we've reviewed a slew of zines over these 40 episodes. And we've loved pretty much all of them. We just like zines. So this episode, we've got, I guess, three for you, but all from one Travis Kennedy. Vanya, what have you got for us? Uh, The first one I wanted to mention is Hannah and the Cambo Passportrait. This is a passport, eh? Passport size zine. I see what he did here. Ah, Amazing. The cover is ridiculous. It's so beautiful. The shadow on her face, Hannah, I'm assuming, is to die for. Beautiful portraits. It's obviously using that passport, that old passport camera. Um, So it's, you know, got two pictures. It's split. So beautiful. I really love what he did here. He got to use some old Polaroid pack film. So that's always fun. It just makes me so sad. (laughs) Just That pack film is gone. I know. But it I'm glad he made the zine because honestly, like the last of this pack film needs something needs to happen with it, right? So Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. He also talks a little bit about he he made this when he was like pretty depressed and anxious. Kind of like at his worst, he says. I think it's so refreshing to have people just talk about this. I think we're starting to talk about it a little bit more. And, you know, because of the year that we've all had, I think we've all kind of experienced um, a lot of a lot of this. But just being able to like open up and say like, look, dude, I made this when I was going through a rough time and it might reflect that. I appreciate that very much. It's beautiful. <laughs> I just love it so much. It's. <laughs> I just like the size. It's so good. <laughs> Let's do the next one. Shadow and light. Okay, so again, he's just a good photographer. (laughs) It's really good. He's got all sorts of things. He's got close-ups. I mean, the grain, it's all black and white. The grain is just ridiculous. It's so good. So if you're down for some grain, he's got some pages that you're going to want to look at. The printing of this is gorgeous. I have no idea who printed this for him, but it is like the blacks are black. So beautiful. Really well done. The way that he kind of just made all the pages, they just work together. He did a really, really good job. Yeah. I don't know how many times he's made zines, but he's he definitely knows what he's doing. And you're going to review the biggest one, Better Off. So Yes. Better Off is a half-size zine. It's the first issue. And it seems like it's kind of overstuffed with street photography. It's a real thick zine. It's, it's like 60 pages, I believe. Uh, I absolutely love it, though. For one... It's like something I've I've never really done before. I'm not a street photographer. If I did a zine like this, I would want it to look like this. Like if I were a street photographer, I think this is kind of what I would do. Uh, does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, know. no, actually it does. It reminds me of your second uh, Conspiracy of the Cartographers. Oh, zine yeah, a little okay. bit. And because of that, I guess his work has a weird familiarity to me. I can relate to it. Uh, I think I would shoot this way. The angles, the subjects, those are how I would have captured it. Maybe it's me or maybe it's some universal thing that I'm just, I don't know. I'm not really concerned about that. I don't know. All I do know is that I dig it. It's 60 pages of black and white city street graininess. Apart from some contact information, there are no words. The photos are printed full bleed, extending to the very edges of the page. Uh, This gives it like a real enveloping feel, like you're being hugged by it. Like your eyes are being hugged by the zine. (laughs) He he crops and he moves his photos around to get the perfect composition. And I'm always just a little too afraid to do that. I'm very much an in-camera composer. And I kind of don't want to be sometimes. 
patterns. I, I feel it really cages me in. And yet I find his work really inspiring. I'm seriously mulling over doing something like this and kind of ripping off his style. And maybe <laughs> you should rip it off too, or at least pick up his zine. And you can get it at betteroffzine.com for 10 bucks. And you can contact him at betteroffzine and at Travis underscore Kennedy on Instagram. We'll have all the links in the show notes like we usually do. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash authorlens. We've got bonus episodes, full-length interviews, like the one we did with Denise, and a growing number of things. Ooh, those things. Most importantly, it's a way to help us pay for hosting, equipment, supplies, and that that newspapers.com account that is really wonderfully helpful almost every damn episode. We'd also like to welcome a new patron. Yes, it's Brandy. Frankly, we're just flabbergasted by all of this. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) And we have a featured patron this week. That's going to be Alex Purcell at Grainy Blur on Instagram. Let's talk about Alex a little. I think we both just got a zine from him. Yes, And we haven't had time to really look at it yet. And so we're going to review it next episode. So you'd definitely be hearing more about it next episode. But he does have a new zine out. Mm -hmm. But his account is, well, it's mostly pinholes, isn't it? Mostly, but I think he has a good range of things. He does really wonderful portraits. He, He does really cool animal portraits too, like of his cat, I guess. And, you know, there's a dog in there somewhere. He's He kind of has a mix of everything. And he's good at all of it. <laughs> he is. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> he dabbles in it all and is kind of slaying. So <laughs> thanks, Alex, for putting us all to shame. <laughs> Uh, that is pretty much all the podcasts we've got for you today. But first, Vanya, what is next week looking like for you? I'm working on getting that lens board on my camera and the Sentry basically up and running. This is the third time I mentioned it. So yes, I am doing it. Also, just wanted to mention Eric, being the homie that he is, found some 5x7 holders that are basically brand new a few months back uh, at a local camera store. So I'm just about ready to photograph with this fucking thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm ready for you to photograph with it. I'm I'm, I'm tired of it just like sitting there doing nothing. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I'm very excited. I just kind of need to make a lens cap for it since it doesn't have a shutter. uh, And then I'm good. And I've already decided that I'm going to find a tiny bowler hat. Like a bowler (laughs) hat for for a dog. dog. (laughs) (laughs) And use that as a lens cap because I think it's kind of perfect. I don't know. Maybe I should find out what 1900, 1905 hats, what was like the popular hat back then and use that. That'd be a good idea. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm assuming you're heading to Eastern Washington. Well, yes, I've had I have hinted at that a few times and it's for the cyanotypes. <laughs> and I'm pretty excited about that. The wildflowers are just coming out. So at this point, we'll probably have some wild buckwheat and some balsam root. And both of those are really, really fun. They're very different looking from each other. And I think they'll make wonderful cyanotypes. We'll see how that goes. And I'll also be shooting. So that's kind of it. I don't have a lot of plans right now. Kind of heading back to work a little bit. Um, I was unemployed for about a year. And so that's sort of changing. I was furloughed more than anything. And that's sort of changing. So I will be working more and more as time goes by. And at some point, I'll get up to 40-ish hours again. And that will mean uh, less time doing nothing at home, which is a real bummer because I enjoyed the shit out of doing nothing. (laughs) 
And before we leave, we just want to remind you what our answering machine question is for next episode. Yeah, this is what vehicle-related things have you done to accommodate photography? Obviously, travel is on our minds right now. I think so. And it can be anything. Like, Denise bought a damn car. (laughs) Yeah, she did. (laughs) Tell us, what have you done? So leave us a message, go to Instagram messages, and send us a voice message using the microphone icon. You've got about 60 seconds, so we've been getting some great messages, and just keep it up. We love hearing from you guys. Yeah. Uh, Is there anything else you have to say? Yes. Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail, and we're allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag All Through Lens Podcast. To be featured, we'll be starting that up again soon. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. <laughs> so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through Lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so very much for listening. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Actually, see you at Dev Party. Vanya, do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. Oh, also, really quick, the Lincoln Continental, it was a 460. 460? Yeah, biggest engine made. Wow. What's up, Eric and Vania? Aloy. Hey, I want to tell you guys something kind of funny. Um, it's kind of ironically funny, right? So whenever, whenever I shoot Kodak film in the past or make a video about their films, I will send an email to their social media saying, hey, I just made this video. You may want to check it out. I'm getting some good results. Uh, I never get a response. Never. Which is okay because I'm sure they get a thousand emails just like that. And I can't answer all of my emails either. But what's interesting is three days ago, they reached out to me. They said, hello, Aloy, we're doing a promotion coming up for our T-Max films. And we saw your video review of T-Max. We see your images. We'd love to feature some of your images in the promotion. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wow, that's awesome, man. What? You know, um, I was kind of speechless and flattered. But it's just funny that that's one thing about social media is you can't force it. You can't force, you know, that's what I'm realizing. It's best to just do the work, do the, do your good work, do the best you can and throw it out there and walk away and not try to ask for anything in return. Um, but I just thought it was real cool and funny that they reached out to me um, in the end. But my attitude is I'll believe it when I see it. When they put the article up or whatever, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, that's my mentality. But uh, yeah, I hope you get a laugh out of that.